Good morning again, everyone. I see a, a few uh, somewhat less familiar faces. Um, my name is Blake Bostic. I'm the worship pastor here at Adventist Church. It's my uh, privilege uh, every week uh, or every week that I'm here to get to lead uh, the music for our services. And then uh, occasionally I preach too. Um, but if you haven't had a chance to meet our other pastors, uh, Stephen was up here a minute ago. He's our uh, missional community pastor. And then Bryce is our teaching pastor. And you'll see him a little bit later. Um, and it's always a privilege when I get to share this, uh, this pulpit. Um, Bryce, since we began the book of 1 Peter several months back, uh, Bryce has preached all but one of the sermons in this book so far. Um, but we decided uh, recently to be a little bit more intentional about me and Stephen uh, preaching a little bit more often. Um, and so from now on, around once a month or so, um, we're going to give Bryce a little bit of a break, and Stephen and I will have Stephen or I will have a chance to, uh, to preach. We're going to kind of uh, take turns. It should fall out to about once a month, and I'm excited about that because um, I love to get the chance to preach. Of course, I love leading uh, musical worship too, but this is an altogether different thing. Getting to share from you. Uh, with the word of God, because whenever I, um, whenever I do the music, uh, it's every, somebody else's uh, words, but whenever I'm preaching, uh, I feel like the, the, the standard is maybe higher because I could really mess this up, and so I'm really going to try to stick to the text uh, when I preach and hopefully reveal to you what the word of God uh, says, and I look forward to getting uh, the chance to do that a little bit more often moving forward. It has been a joy over the past several months. Uh, we did, of course, take a break for our uh, uh, for our 10th anniversary celebration a few weeks ago and then for the Advent season before Christmas. But, uh, for the, but other than that, those periods, over the last few months, we've been going through the book of First Peter together. Um, and if, if you're new to Vintage, though, that's the way we uh, generally preach here at Adventist Church. We pick a book of the Bible and we just walk straight through it, um, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Um, and it's been a joy to be able to do that in this book, uh, in this epistle. Um, but it's also been challenging at times. But I hope, it has been for me, I hope for you, it's been a joy even when, and perhaps especially when, it's been challenging. Over the last couple of chapters in particular, we've encountered some difficult commands that are definitely at odds with what the world around us teaches us. And it can be hard for us as Christians to live in a sinful world that constantly bombards us with Moral messages, and make no doubt that the messages that you get from the world are messages of a morality, but they are often the exact opposite of what God teaches us about his morality in his word. It's the exact opposite of what he calls us to. And not only does it make us unusual to live in the world uh, and, and choose to obey God's commands rather than going along with the cultural norms, but Increasingly, it can make the world often hostile toward Christians when we obey the word of God. I mean, you may have experienced being called a bigot or worse uh, simply for being obedient to what God has called you to in his words. I mean, 1 Peter teaches us some pretty counter-cultural things, right? We, we, we read recently that we ought to live in submission to the governing authorities. The world doesn't like that word, submission. That's sort of a dirty word in, in the culture, but it's all over the Bible, 1 Peter teaches us that we're supposed to be submissive to the governing authorities. Uh, that we ought to obey those who are in charge of us. The world tells you, no, 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 just do whatever you want. Live your truth. Ignore any kind of moral code or possible consequences. You do you. That's not what the Word of God teaches us. 
It teaches us to submit to God's authoritative eternal word. And then when we look at God's design for marriage, uh, not only do we believe, because it's what the Bible teaches, that marriage is defined as the monogamous lifelong union of man and woman, but we saw over the last couple of weeks some really countercultural things about marriage. We saw that word submission again. We saw how God's word teaches us that wives are called to submit to their husbands and that husbands ought to lead their wives like Christ led the church. In fact, Ephesians says that uh, husbands should love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's the opposite of a you-do-you mentality. The world would say that what, what, what Peter teaches us here in these last couple of chapters, that's just outdated misogyny, that only sexist fools would believe that nonsense. But you and I believe, or at least I hope you do, that this is the eternal word of God. We are not called, church, to submit to what the culture teaches us. We are called to submit to what our creator has mandated and revealed to us in his word. But that doesn't mean that it is easy. Often it is difficult to obey the word of God. And we may wonder when we encounter difficult commands, why would God call us to do things that go against our instincts? Why would God stop us from pursuing, from pursuing what we truly desire? Why does God force us to live in this cage of submissive obedience? Well, for starters, I think we would do well to remember that, first of all, God created us. God knows what's best for us. God knows there is no such thing as finding fulfillment apart from him and living the way that he has called us to live. God truly does want us to flourish in this life, but not by our standards, but by his standards. God doesn't give us these commands to obey in order to cage us. He gives us these commands to obey in order to set us free to live in his grace so that we can flourish in him. The only true freedom that you and I ever could find is when we submit our own will to God's will and we seek to live in the way that he has designed us to. Church, there is no joy to be found in living your truth, doing what you think is best for you, because we have no idea what is best for us. How arrogant are we to think that somehow we know better than God, that somehow we could find meaning in this life apart from knowing and obeying the author of this life. Romans 9 says, Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? What will, or will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? How arrogant can we be sometimes? Church, God's commands, his call to obedience, are actually an evidence of his grace. Because it is only in submitting to God's commands that we can live the lives that God intended for us to live. It's only then can we be set free in his grace. God doesn't want to cage you. He wants to give you grace to live and to flourish in him. So if you ever find yourself encountering commands of Scripture and wondering why obedience is hard, remember, it's because it's for your own good and it's for God's glory. Over time, as we are sanctified by the Spirit of God and we grow in the understanding of God's Word and hopefully we get a better understanding of God's heart, I hope that we see that. And over time, obedience can be transformed into joy not a burden, because it's what God has called us to. It's how he designed us to live. Over the past several weeks, we've been looking at how those who have been born again to a living hope, 
Peter says at the beginning of this book, how we are to operate within the different relational spheres that we find ourselves in. In chapter 2, starting in verse 13, we looked at how we as Christians are called to submit to the government. Not a popular message, but we're called to in God's word. We saw that even when we live under sinful leaders, which, spoiler, if you live under a government, you're living under sinful leaders because everybody is a sinner. Even, even in the best government, we live under sinful leaders. The Bible still says we are called to live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Then in the rest of chapter 2, we looked at how slaves relate to their masters, which also has application for us in our context for how employees ought to relate to their employers. We saw that even when we labor under those who might treat us in an unjust way, that it is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. And then two weeks ago, we saw how wives are called to submit to their husbands. And in so doing, even when the husband doesn't believe in the gospel, that they could demonstrate the transforming love of the gospel to their husband and then point him to Jesus. Then last week, we saw the call for husbands to live with their wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Now, perhaps, depending on the context of your life and and where you are, you found yourself in reading these texts and listening to these sermons thinking, yeah, that doesn't really apply to me. Um, There's really no direct application in my life for these particular verses. Now, I assume that everybody here is a citizen living under a government, so that one applies to us all. But um, not everyone here has a boss, right? Not everyone here is employed by an employer. Not everyone here is a husband or a wife. But I think that it's important for us when we encounter scriptures that we think maybe they don't apply to us. We need to remember that 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3 says that all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. So even when you think it doesn't apply to you, it does have something to teach you. When we encounter these scripture that calls us to struggle to see how they can apply to our lives um, because maybe they don't apply to our immediate circumstances, I think God can still use those passages to teach us. And one way that can happen is when we get out of the habit of reading the Bible and saying, okay, what can I get out of this? What's in here for me? Instead, when we read the Bible, we should first ask, what does this show me about God? Now, we would do well to remember that even though the Bible is applicable to our lives, the the Bible does have the power to transform us as the Spirit of God opens the eyes of our hearts to understand God's truth. Ultimately, the Bible is not about us. It doesn't center on us. It is about God. God is at the center of the entire story. And so I would challenge you, even in the passages that don't seem to apply to you, to ask yourself, how is God revealing himself in these verses? And when we do that, we can see even in passages about wives and husbands, when, when, when you're not a wife or a husband and you read those, they have a lot to say about who God is and why he has established a social order in this way. These verses reveal things about God's goodness and grace that we will miss if we think, oh, that doesn't apply to me. That's not for me. But if that's been you, if you thought maybe, maybe these past few weeks weren't applicable in your lives, I have good news for you. 
uh, Peter says today, finally, all of you. So this is everybody. We're moving out of specific instructions for these, these targeted demographics. And we're looking at commands for all believers today. All of those who Peter says have been born again to a living hope. And so with that in mind, let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. I'm really mostly just going to preach one verse today, but I'm going to read this whole little chunk. Uh, 1 Peter 3, verses 8 through 12 say this. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. We pray before we jump in here. God, we thank you for all that your word reveals to us about you. God, even at times when we may struggle to see how it applies to our lives, Lord, help us to remember that ultimately your word is about you first and foremost. God, every jot and every tittle has something to reveal to us about your goodness and your grace, about your character. God, we thank you for these commands today that show us a little more clearly what our lives are to look like if we are to be imitators of Christ. Lord, if we desire to love our lives and to see good days. God, when we encounter commands that are difficult or that, that, that are, go against our natural instincts, Lord, would you help us to remember uh, that the call to obedience is for our own good. Lord, for you do not desire to rob us of joy, Lord, but that we might have fullness of joy. Lord, as we learn uh, how to better imitate Christ, Lord, how to look more like him in the power of your spirit, Lord, would you do the work of sanctification in our hearts? Or would you make us look more like Jesus? Lord, we know your word is powerful. We know that it is eternal and it is true, even when it is at odds with the culture. So God, use these words to penetrate our hearts and to transform our lives today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. So I'm not going to be able to cover the entire passage for you today. Um, but before we get into these key imperatives uh, in verse, uh, verses 8 and 9, I want to jump over those to verse 10 to sort of frame this sermon a bit for you. Peter says that the commands that he gives us in verses 8 and 9 are, are for those whom he says desire to love life and to see good days. And isn't, isn't that really all of us, if we're honest? Don't we all want to love our lives, to see good days? And I don't mean that from like a, a hedonistic point of view, that pleasure is all that there is to be found in this life. I don't think that's what Peter means either. I think he's speaking of finding a life that is meaningful, life that is fulfilling, life that is one that we truly love. I mean, Jesus told us in John's gospel that he came that we might have life and have it abundantly. And I don't think he's just talking about quantity there. He's talking about a life that we love. 
It's not necessarily a shallow thing for us to desire to, desire to love our lives and to see good days. Now, we know based on tons of scripture, including right here in Peter's epistle, many verses that we've looked at, that doesn't mean that everything always will be or should be easy for us as Christians. We are guaranteed to face suffering in this world. We are going to see many days that are not good. We will certainly encounter difficult times. You will never hear a distorted view of the gospel at this church that gives you some sort of shallow guarantee of health or wealth or happiness. But on the contrary, you are often told here that Jesus calls you to lay down your life, to die to yourself daily, and to endure many difficult things for the sake of his glory. And so though we know life is difficult... And the call for Christians is to come and die to ourselves every single day. We also know that in Christ, if we truly want to experience all that Christ has for us, we have life that is more rich and abundant and meaningful than anything we could ever find in the material blessings of this world. The problem with the health and wealth and prosperity gospel is not that it promises too much. It promises too little. Jesus offers us so much more than that. And it's not wrong to desire rich and meaningful life that Jesus offers us. In fact, if Jesus came and he tells us that he came that we might have abundant life, I would say it's wrong for us not to desire that because we're denying ourselves something that God wants us to have. We should want to love our lives and to see good days because that's the joyful existence that Jesus purchased for us. Not just in the life to come, but even now. Now, we've looked here uh, at the life of a man in the Bible who did this in all the wrong ways. Last year, we spent time in the book of Ecclesiastes looking at a guy who sought uh, to live the good life through seeking out power and fame and riches and women and sex and drugs and rock and roll. And in the end, he found it all to be vanity. That guy's name was Solomon. He sought fulfillment. He sought the good life in the wrong ways. He found it to be vanity. He found it was chasing after the wind. Solomon had had everything that the flesh desires and then some, and he still could not, in those things, find a way to love his life, to see good days. He found futility in all of it. If only, if only Solomon had the epistle of uh, 1 Peter here then maybe he would have been saved from a lot of heartache. Now, fortunately, we we are at an advantage over Solomon. We do have Peter's words inspired by the Holy Spirit, giving us a sort of uh, spiritual recipe, if you will, for how we can indeed love our lives and see good days. Now, I don't mean like this is like a formula that if you do this stuff, then life's going to be good. But these are uh, things that Peter calls us to, that if we pursue them in the power of the Spirit, uh, then we will get closer to the abundant life that Jesus has for us. Now, it is worth mentioning before we look at these virtues, these words in 1 Peter 3, 8, and 9, they are for believers. They are for Christians. It should go without mentioning, but if you have never been born again to a living hope in Christ, today's imperatives will just sound like more commands for you, just a generic list of of, of virtues. And not only will they be impossible for you to do, in your own strength, but if you try to obey them apart from having been redeemed by Christ and made into a new creation, 
Not only are you going to fail at that, but you will fail to find the life that Peter is describing because the life that Peter is describing is only found for those who are in Christ, who have trusted in what he did in laying down his life for our sin. So don't miss that. This is for believers. And if, you, and if you read this and you think, I can never measure up to this, that's absolutely true. But there is one who is measured up in your place and died for your sin. His name is Jesus. Repent and trust in him today. So Christian, if you are in Christ, if you have been washed by his blood and you are being sanctified by the power of his spirit, Peter's words here are a beautiful formula for how we as believers can indeed learn to love our lives and to see good days. And remember, as he says in verse 8, these words are for all of us. So if you are a Christian, listen up, this is for you. First of all, he says in order for us to love life and to see good days, he calls Christians to have unity of mind. Other trans- translations say instead of unity of mind, they say harmonious, being like-minded or having a unity of spirit. We are called as believers to be unified in, in mind and heart and spirit, to be one with one another. Quoting 1 Corinthians 10, uh, there's this old Anglican communion liturgy that we used to do sometimes on Sundays uh, when we participate in the Lord's Supper. It says, we break this bread to share in the body of Christ. Though we are many, we are one body because we all share in one bread. We had to cut that when we went to little bitty breads, but um, we used to break one bread. And it was, there's a beautiful imagery here. We are many, but we are one body because we all share in one bread. Because we are covered by the blood of Christ, we are one in Christ. And we ought to operate out of a single mission and purpose as the body of Christ. Now, this is not an optional calling for believers. In fact, we see this call all throughout the New Testament. Unity should be a defining characteristic of God's people. Because the Bible is full of these calls for Christian unity. In Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, he prayed, Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Paul exhorts us in Romans 12, 16, to live in harmony with one another. And then again in Philippians 2, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And then Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians 1. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Clearly, there's this New Testament principle that God's people are to be of one mind. This command is not uh, limited to one small nugget from Peter, but all over God's word. And, you know, we read those commands and think, okay, absolutely, we agree with that. But what does that unity of mind actually look like for God's people? I thought of an example, and you might think it's silly, but I'm going to share it anyway. I want to I confess to you something that you might know and you might not know, but here it is. A couple weeks ago, we were playing songs on Sunday morning up here before the sermon, and I started a song in the wrong key. I don't think Joe noticed back on the drums, but it was a song that uh, Summer was supposed to lead singing. And I started it in a key that we do it in when I uh, lead the vocals. Some of you might have noticed by the looks on our faces, but we could have stopped and just started the song over because it was not, it was not summer's key. It was going to get really high if, if, if we kept going. 
Um, and starting over would have been fine. It would have been a slight, slight distraction, but, you know, this is not a performance. It's, you know, it's fine. We could have started over. Wouldn't, no big deal. But um, we've been playing together for 10 years. I was doing the math on that. That's like 500 services, you know. We've been playing together a long time. Um, and, you know, particular for, uh, for Stephen and Summer and me, we were up here, and Drew was up here that day too, uh, we've learned to read one another. We adjusted uh, on the fly there. And so Summer continued to sing the verses, and then we switched, and I sang the chorus uh, because it was in my range there. And unless, again, unless you could kind of see the communication that was happening, see the looks on her faces, which maybe we were not discreet at all, and maybe you totally noticed that. But unless you could tell, I'm guessing most of you didn't notice that we, we, we averted a little micro-disaster there on the stage. We were able to make that work because we've been doing this together for a decade and we've learned to play and sing together even in less than ideal circumstances in a way that's harmonious because we've been doing this a long time. We have unity of mind when we lead worship together. Now, harmony is, a appropriate, is an appropriate synonym for having unity of mind. That's what I said. One of, some of the other translations say that we are supposed to be harmonious people. Now, when we as God's people live harmoniously, it means that we agree about what matters most And we make up for one another's shortcomings. And to be sure, we can sing a much more beautiful song of God's grace when we harmonize with one another than when we try to go about the Christian life as a soloist. Indeed, there are no soloists in the body of Christ. You know, another good example for what this harmony can look like or should look like is marriage. The Bible tells us that in marriage, the two become one flesh. And they don't completely give up what makes them individuals. But over time, husband and wife should increasingly be of a singular heart. That doesn't mean they will always agree that they will never have differences. But their purpose and their mission is the same. and becomes more so over time. They have unity of mind. And that should be the same for the church, for the body of Christ. We are many members, but we are part of the same body. We are individuals with individual strengths and weaknesses, but we all have the same Holy Spirit indwelling us. We have the same Great Commission, the same Bible, the same Savior, the same Gospel, and the same calling upon our lives. In a world that is more and increasingly more so divided than ever, more filled with conflict than ever, even within the church oftentimes, may we be different. May we demonstrate to the world a supernatural harmony. That when we do disagree, that we do so well with, with, for the sake of one another. For the purpose of building up the body and seeking to make it stronger. Let us be known primarily for what we agree on. That in the power of the Spirit of God, we want to make disciples of all nations until Christ comes again. Let us be unified in mind, church. Secondly, Peter says that if we want to live love life and see good days, not only do we need unity of mind, but we need to have sympathy, he says. Other translations say that we need to be compassionate, to have concern for one another. And that flows right out of this idea of being unified in mind. When we are unified, we feel sympathetically toward one another, both when times are good and when they're not. Romans 12 Which Lexi read for us earlier, Paul says to rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Galatians 6, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. So again, we see this call to sympathy 
all over God's word. And is that not the example that Jesus set for us by his life and by his death? Living sympathetically with one another? In the Gospel of John, uh, we see uh, Mary, her brother, is sick. And she asks for Jesus to come and heal him. And by the time Jesus gets there, he's, he's too late. Or at least that's what she thought, because her brother, Lazarus, was dead. And Jesus knew what was about to happen. But this is what the Gospel of John says in John 11. It says, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. That's your memory verse for the week. John eleven thirty five. 35. Jesus wept. Shortest verse in the Bible. Tells us something about the heart of Jesus. Now I'm sure if you've been around you know the end of this story. Jesus was about to raise Lazarus from the dead. Like this story has a very happy ending. So why would Jesus waste time crying about it? Why would he spend time weeping when he knew he was about to do a miraculous resurrection from the dead? It's because Jesus sympathized with his friend. She was brokenhearted over the death of her brother. And even though Jesus knew what he was about to do, even though he knew the eternal truth of God, he sat with her in her grief. The psalmist says that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. We see that so clearly right here, that Jesus wept with those who wept. He sympathized with them in their mourning. He didn't invalidate or criticize their feelings, say, get over it. No, he wept with his friend because he loved her. And that's how he demonstrated the heart of God to her. He sat with her in her grief. Now, this is also true of rejoicing. Christians ought to be known as those who rejoice with one another. When a baby is born, when a Christian couple gets married, when somebody is baptized, we ought to party. We should rejoice like no other. But we have a unique opportunity, I think, to demonstrate Christ-likeness when we show sympathy to one another in times of sorrow. We don't tell people to buck up and deal with it or offer them trite platitudes. Oh, it's all going to work out. No, we weep with them. We enter into one another's grief. We feel their sorrow because that's what Jesus did for us. And in a unique and a supernatural way, godly sympathy shows the love of Christ to the world, perhaps in a a more tangible way than anything else that we can do. When we weep with those who weep, when we sympathize with one another. And so we see we're called to have unity of mind. We are called to have sympathy for each other. Thirdly, we see that if we want to love our lives and to see good days, we have to have brotherly love. Now that comes from the Greek word philia. It's where we get the word Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. So if you ever forget, that's what it means, brotherly love. It's one of the different words for love in the Bible. And when the Bible uses this word for love, it's specifically referring to unselfish love between fellow humans. Loving one another like a brother. Now we see commands again all over the New Testament for us to to have this type of love for one another. 
Jesus says in John 13, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another, and by this, people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Back in 1 Peter chapter 1, which we looked at a few months ago, he says, Having purified yourselves by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Romans 12, which we keep coming back to, and that's why I had Lexi read that today, says, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. And not only do we see that we are called to this type of love for each other, but we also see why we are called to this type of love. In 1 John, 1 John 3, 16 says that by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. And then 1 John 4 says we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and he hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God who he has not, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. See, there is no room, no room in the Christian's heart for hatred toward one another. Or for a sort of self-centered type of love that puts our needs before those of our brother. If Christ loved us with this type of love, how could we withhold this type of love from one another? We should be defined as a people who by the, by the love we demonstrate toward one another in word and in deed, both within the community of fellow Christians and to those who do not belong to Christ, they, that we demonstrate the heart of God. This is how the world knows that we indeed belong to Christ, Jesus says, by the love that we have for one another. Now I know the context of these verses clearly don't limit this to uh, love between biological brothers. Clearly, we're talking about a broader principle here. It's just using the word brotherly to describe this love between fellow humans, right? But when I read brotherly love, I can't help but think about my brothers. Uh, I have two biological brothers, an older brother and a younger brother. And it calls that relationship to mind when I think about brotherly love. I'm blessed to have great relationships with both of my brothers. I consider, consider them both, both to be among my best friends in the world. And so when I think of brotherly love, it's not the same necessarily as just loving somebody in a generic way, loving somebody as a friend. Loving as a brother is something that goes deeper than that. It's, it's stronger. It's love that perseveres. It's love that forgives. To love like a brother, to me, is one of the highest callings that we can have because brotherly love is unlike other types of love. And that bond that brothers share should be like the bond between Christians. For though I share uh, genetic similarities with my brothers and I share godly parents and I share deep relationships with my, my biological brothers, the body of Christ is united by the blood of Christ, which is more than our DNA, church. We are united by the blood of Christ that was shed to demonstrate God's great love toward us. Beloved, we are one in Christ's blood. So we ought to have unity of mind and sympathy for one another and love one another with brotherly love. To demonstrate that sort of selflessness that Christ demonstrated for us. If anything ought to bind us together and cause us to demonstrate that sort of love, it is the fact that if we are in Christ... Excuse me, it is the fact that we are in Christ and those are the eternal ties that bind in a way that nothing else could bind us. 
Fourthly, we see that if we want to love our lives and if we want to see good days, we must have tender hearts. Now, I don't want to belabor this point. I think it's closely related to the idea of sympathy, the idea of brotherly love, and we've already discussed those. But Paul highlights, uh, excuse me, elsewhere in the New Testament, Paul highlights some, a couple of things related to tenderheartedness that I think can illuminate a little bit more about what it means to have tender hearts besides what we've already discussed. So I want to read to you a little bit from Ephesians 4. Paul says this, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Stephen taught us a memory verse song for that last one at VBS last year, and I can't read that without singing it in my mind. Um, so I think these illuminate some some extra helpful things for us for what it means to live as God's people with tender hearts. There are two ways in this corroborating passage that I want to highlight that show us how we can better demonstrate this tender heartedness of Jesus. First, in our speech. We are to speak to one another, Paul says, in a way that builds one another up, in a way that demonstrates grace. Tender speech may come naturally for you or it may not. There are some people who, who tend to speak to one another in a more tender way because of their natural disposition. And then there are other people who that is the opposite of true. It is counter-instinctual to speak with tenderness. We have to work at it. We ought not speak to one another, either to fellow believers or to the lost, in a way, though, that is malicious. But we ought to speak to one another tenderly and with grace. Now, after all, the fruit of the Spirit is not biting comebacks or sarcastic retorts. The fruit of the Spirit is peace, kindness, gentleness. Even when we are speaking difficult truths to people, even when they are wrong and we need to communicate that to them, we still speak to them with kindness, gentleness, and peace. Not sarcasm, not biting comebacks. Parents, even when you're disciplining your children, we are called to demonstrate grace, to speak with tenderness. To use our words in a way that, that show the grace of Jesus. That highlight these fruits of the Spirit. Kindness, gentleness, and peace. Even when we are having an argument with someone. Even when they're wrong. Even when our first inclination is to tear one another down with our words. We should use our words in a way that demonstrates tender hearts. It shows grace as it has been, sh been shown so abundantly to us. So first, one way that you can demonstrate a tender heart toward one another is with your words, by being intentional about the way you speak to one another. I say a lot of yous when I'm preaching. It's all we, by the way. It's all we. Secondly, Paul calls us in Ephesians 4 to put away bitterness, wrath, anger, slander, and malice. In other words, we're called to be a people of peace. Now, tender hearts may be easy for us to spot by the way that people speak, but it's even easy for, easier for us to spot by the way that people treat one another. Sometimes it can be tempting for us to wear hardness of heart as a badge of honor, particularly as we age. We may take a certain satisfaction in becoming bitter curmudgeons as we get older. We, uh, 
we, we complain about kids these days. We just want them to get off of our lawn and leave us alone. I know that sounds kind of silly, but I think that's true. A lot of times as we get older, we become more hardened to the world. We, become, we, we, we look upon optimists with scoffing. We think they're young and they'll learn that it's all, it's all a mess. I don't, want to, I don't want us to be like that. I don't want to be known like that as I get older. I don't want to grow into a grumpy old jerk. If the Spirit of God is sanctifying me, I hope the opposite of that is true. I want to become more tender-hearted as I grow in Christ. What a testimony of, of the grace of Jesus Christ would that be for us. For us to look more like Jesus by the tenderness of our words and our actions as we grow in Him, as we grow older. To instead of raising a generation of curmudgeons, we raise a generation of tender-hearted people who love one another and who demonstrate that. Indeed, if we are getting to know God more and more, as we learn to understand the heart of God, how could we help but become more kind and tender-hearted? May this be true of us. And we become a gentle, tender-hearted people. Not, not people who just are, are, are so meek that we get run over. We stand for truth. But we do so in a way that demonstrates grace. That speaks to one another with sympathy. That cares about one another's souls. Fifthly, Peter tells us in these verses that if we want to love our lives and to see good days, that we have to have humble minds. Now, we've spoken about humility before because humility comes up often in the Bible. Humility should be the default position for how we approach God. Because when we see God for who He is, when we see what we truly deserve in our sin, pride is, makes no sense at all. Pride is the default position of our hearts. But what we try to illuminate for you here is how magnificent God is. And how much we need to throw ourselves upon his grace. And the only way to throw yourself upon the grace of God is by humbling yourself before him. How could we be a proud people? As Martin Luther said in his dying words, we are beggars. This is true. That is all we have. is nothing before the Lord. We, we come with nothing. And he offers us grace upon grace. And yet, as we have seen today, all of these virtues relate not just to how we come before God but also to how we treat one another. Just as we should approach God with humility, because His holiness demands such, we should treat one another with humility as well. Jesus told us a parable in Luke 14 that illustrates this point. It says, He told a parable to those who were invited when He noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, Lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you were invited, go and sit in the lowest place. So that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. Christian, when we consider what real humility 
looks like, both when we come before the Lord and when we interact with one another, we have no greater example of what humility looks like than Jesus himself. You hear these verses a lot. I think I read them the last time I preached, but they, they come up so much. Philippians 2, 3-8 says, To do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not only look to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That is the ultimate example of what humility looks like and giving up your own needs for someone else's. Now, Peter goes on in, in verse 9, and I'm not, not going to go there today, but he goes on to talk extensively about forgiveness. And I could spend another 30 minutes on forgiveness, so I decided to stop with humble minds here. But forgiveness is at the heart of all of this, church. Jesus demonstrated all of these things to us when he laid down his life and offered us forgiveness through his death. When we consider this list of virtues that we are called to, to be a people who are unified in mind, who have sympathy and brotherly love, who have tender hearts and humble minds, we are given a picture of what Jesus looks like. Jesus is the only one who can exemplify all of these attributes perfectly and indeed who did exemplify these attributes. But we are called to be imitators of Christ. Now we know we can't do that on our own strength, but as the Holy Spirit works in us, he makes us into imitators of Christ. And so when we see these things and we see that's what Jesus looks like, we should hope that more and more that's what we look like. If we want to look more like him, we should, in the power of the Spirit, seek to cultivate these fruits in our lives. To be people who are unified in mind. We have sympathy, brotherly love, tender hearts, and humility. As we learn to relate to one another with hearts that are continually being transformed into God's heart, it's only that in learning to treat one another in this way, that we will not only find a life that is worth loving, but we will truly find a life that is filled with the love of God. Let's pray. God, thank you that you have given us a sort of recipe, Lord, for what a, a love-filled life looks like. God, and we know that if we seek to find good days, if we seek to love our lives, Lord, through, uh, through trying to fill it with what we think is best for us, Lord, we will just be like Solomon. Lord, it will all be vanity, chasing after the wind. God, we know, just as Solomon found, Lord, that in the end, it's about fearing you and keeping your commandments. Lord, in surrendering our lives to your will. Lord, not in seeking to do things in our own way. God, would you make us look more like Jesus as you transform our hearts by your Spirit God, would you make us a people who are unified in mind, Lord, who are sympathetic, Lord, who weep with one another and rejoice with one another. God, who uh, have um, humble hearts, humble minds, Lord, tender hearts, Lord, and who love one another with the love that you have loved us with.
God, it is easy for us to read these things and think, okay, now, now I need to, this is my checklist. This is how I need to live my life, Lord. But we know this uh, transforming work is not something that uh, we can do simply by checking off boxes, Lord, by, by being more pious, by trying really hard, Lord, but only as we get to know you, Lord, as we examine your word, Lord, individually and together, Lord, as we surround ourselves with those who exemplify these characteristics, Lord, as we get to know your heart, Lord, we know that it's only then that you can transform us and, and make these things evident in our lives. So, God, I pray that you would do that. God, that would people, when people look at us, they would not just see us as a virtuous people, Lord, but as a people who have something supernatural going on inside of us. Lord, for it is truly supernatural to sympathize with one another. It is truly supernatural to be unified in your spirit. God, may we speak, may we act in a way that honors you, that demonstrates grace as you have demonstrated it so clearly to us. Lord, and as we come to this time where we get to remember uh, the grace that you demonstrated to us in sending your son to die for us, Lord, would you help us to approach you with humility, with thankfulness for what you have done. It's in Jesus' name we pray.